Good morning. This morning we are continuing our series called The Life of Paul. It's a series of sermons on Paul in the New Testament, the missionary, the apostle, the author of books of the Bible. Um, we've been in it for a while now. And so um, Paul wrote several letters that we call books in the New Testament. And it's a little bit misleading, um, at least for the way we use the, some of these words in modern times. Um, I would say the word book nowadays um, refers to something that I would guess is at least like 40 pages long. Anything less than that, I think we would probably call a booklet or a pamphlet. And yet, um, we use the word in a different way when it comes to the Bible. The Bible is made up of 66 ancient documents, and we call all 66 of those documents books, even though some of them are one page long. We still call them the books of the Bible. And so the Apostle Paul actually wrote um, several letters and they're not really books by our modern definition of books. Some of the letters were just a page or two long. Some of them were like five or six or seven pages long. Um, but he wrote these letters either, either to personal friends or to churches or to groups of churches. Um, and so we call many of his letters books in the New Testament. And so today what we're going to get to is we're going to get to um, what I believe is the first letter that Paul wrote or the first book that Paul wrote, if you will, the first letter that he wrote to a group of people. And we're going to find out why he wrote it. That's going to happen this morning. If you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Acts chapter 14. We're going to pick up right where we left off last week. In fact, I'm going to read Acts 14 starting in verse 21, and I'm going to read to chapter 15 verse 2. And you'll notice, if you were here last week, that the first two verses that I'm going to read today are the two verses we learned last week, and that's on purpose. Okay, I'm purposely going to reread last week's verses just to give you the context of what all of the new verses um, are. So, Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 21, here we go. After they had evangelized that town, anybody that was here last week remember what town it was? Derby, very good. After they had evangelized that town and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the disciples by encouraging them to continue in the faith and by telling them it is necessary to pass through many troubles on our way into the kingdom of God. So all that sound familiar for those of you that were here last week? So now here's the new material. When they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. After they spoke the message in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been entrusted to the, work, to the grace of God for the work that they had now completed. After they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples. Some men, and I'm just going to keep reading. I know there's a chapter break there, but there weren't, Luke didn't put in chapter breaks. This was the next thing he wrote. Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. But after Paul and Barnabas had engaged them in serious argument and debate, the church arranged for Paul and Barnabas and some of the others of them to go up to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem concerning this controversy. So if you look at this little section that we're learning today, um, it's not hard to summarize. We left off last week where they had revisited towns that they had gone to in the past, right? They went back to Lystra, they went back to Iconium, they went back to Antioch and Pisidia. And the reason I reread that is because now we got to the point where it says they appointed elders in every church. So they've picked these, um, these elders and appointed them to these churches, and then they go back home. And that's what you see described basically in verses 24 to 28. Their missionary journey is done, they travel back home, and they're hanging out there for a while. I don't know how long, but they were there for a while. And then after a while, 
some false teachers arrive, and they start arguing with the false teachers. That's what happened in the section that I just read to you. So that's the quick overview. Now let's just go back and look at it verse by verse and kind of dive a little bit deeper. Um, Acts chapter 14, starting in verse 23. This is our first verse this morning. Can you put it up there? Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Um, when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they committed them to the Lord whom they had believed. So when it says they appointed elders in every church, what does that mean? What, which churches did they appoint elders in? Well, the context would give us the, the idea that it's Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. When it says they appointed elders in every church, which churches? I think it's every church that was just mentioned in the paragraph before, right? They had just gone through those three, and so they appointed elders in those churches. Well, what does that mean? Like, what's an elder, right? They appointed elders in these churches. What is an elder? And so, first of all, I guess I'll let you know, if you use the term quite literally, the word means an old man. It's the way it sounds in English even, like elder, okay? The word, the word elder, like the, the word that's translated from elder is a word that means old man. However, that's not the way that the word is being used here in this sentence. And in fact, that's not the way the word is used, I think, most of the time in the New Testament, okay? In this case, it's being used as a technical term for church leader. And it's really obvious that it's being used as a technical term for church leader and not just literally an old man because what did they do to make these people into elders? They appointed them. You do not, I mean, you all know this already. You do not go from young man to old man by being appointed, right? No, you go, the way you get from young man to old man is not dying for a long time, right? That's, that's the way you, that's it. How do you become an old man? You don't die. That's how you do it. That's not what's happening here. These people are being appointed to it. So it, it doesn't mean old man here. It means church leader. So what they were doing here was they were going through these churches and they were appointing leaders. They were choosing leaders because they were going to leave these towns. And so they were handing off the leadership of these churches to men that are in these churches that would be continuing to live there among the people. The verse says that they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting. I think that shows like how seriously they were taking the appointment to church leadership. They were praying about it. They were um, not eating food for some period of time as they were trying to take this whole thing very seriously. And it says, and they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. And I, I think that's their way of saying like, we're here, we've started these churches and now we're leaving and so we commit you to the Lord. Like you guys are in his hands now. Like we leave these churches in the hands of these leaders that we've appointed, but we really entrust you all to God. Like sort of as our spiritual children, here you are and now we go and we commit you to God. And so then the next verse, verse 24, starts to describe the trip home. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. So Pisidia would have been in this region um, over here near Antioch. And then when it says they passed through Pamphylia, that would be south of there. So that's, they're going this direction. So they start traveling down. Um, after they spoke the message in Perga, they went down to Italia. So you can see here Perga. Perga was actually a city that you can see by the red line. Red line is on the way in. Blue line's on the way out. For those of you who didn't figure that out. Um, they stopped in Perga on the way in, and there's no record of anything that they really did there on the way in. It doesn't say that they preached or, or did anything, but in this case, it says they spoke the message in Perga. So it looks like the second time around, they did go and preach in Perga. And then they went to Italia, and it doesn't say much there. I'm assuming they just went there because it was a port city. 
um, because the next thing they did is they sailed off. So next verse, uh, verse 26, from there, that is from Italia, they sailed back to Antioch where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work they had now completed, right? So they started their trip this way, went through Cyprus, they went up here, they went through these three cities, had a nice time in Derby, went back, tracked through these three cities, preached in Perga at least the second time if they didn't the first time, got on a boat and traveled back to the city they started the whole thing in. And so now the missionary trip is over. When it says they went back to Antioch where they had been entrusted to the grace of God for the work, that's saying like that was the place where God had said, I want you to go and do this mission, right? The place that they had received their mission was here. And they went and did it, and then they went back to that place, their home church, because they were now done. Verse 27, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything that God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a considerable time with the disciples. So they get back home, they gather the church together, and they reported. They started sharing missionary stories. Let, like You all were here when we got sent out, and we went, and now we're back, and we're going to tell you what happened while we were on our trip. And I'm pretty sure that that was probably really exciting because those of you who've been here for the past month know that a whole bunch of crazy things happened on the trip. So they went back and started hanging out with their friends. And they're, hanging out, they're having some you know, meeting somewhere with all the Christians in town and the, you know, all the Christians that they know in their church. And they start saying like, whoa, it was so crazy. And they stoned me almost to death. And then we went to the next town and they, they tried to kick us out of this other town. And there was this sorcerer that opposed us. And then we rebuked him. And then he went blind right on the spot. And I didn't see that coming. And then there was this Roman official that became a Christian. A Roman official became a Christian. And they're telling all these stories to the people when they get back. And it says that um, one of the things that was like, I think, really exciting is they said they reported everything that um, God had done as he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They're over here going, wow, all this crazy stuff happened. And Christianity isn't just like a Jewish thing anymore. Like there are tons of Gentiles way over here that believe in Jesus now. Man, it's incredible that this is happening. And then it says they spent a considerable time with the disciples. And I think that's the way of saying they got back to normal. Like they, this, because this was, remember, this was their hometown. And so when they came back and they spent a considerable amount of time, I think that means the missions trip was over and they went back to normal life. And then I believe that something happened right around this time that they went back to normal life. I believe something horrible happened right around this time. And the horrible thing is that false teaching began to creep in to the churches. And the false teaching that began to creep into the churches was so significant that two things happened. First of all, number one, an entire book of the Bible had to be written about it. And number two, a big meeting had to take place down in Jerusalem in order to, to clear it up. Okay? False teaching that was such a big deal that a whole book of the Bible had to get written about it and a meeting had to happen with the earliest church leaders in Jerusalem to sort of settle the controversy. And so today and probably a little bit more next week, um, I'm going to focus on just one of those two things, okay? The fact that a book of the Bible had to be written about it. The meeting that happened in Jerusalem, I'm going to go ahead and put off to a little bit later time in this series. But for this week, and I think next week, I want to focus on the book of the Bible that had to be written because of what was happening at this point. But before I do, let me go ahead and read to you what, the kind, what, what, what kind of false teaching was this that was creeping into the church at this time. And so we, we see it because it's in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 15, verse 1 says, Some men came down from Judea and began to teach the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So some people came, traveled from Judea to Antioch, and I realize the Bible says they came 
down from Judea, and on our map, they're going north. But I, I, and I don't exactly know. I didn't even uh, look up the reason why that, but they always do that. Every single time these people are going up here, it always says they're going down. It might have to do with elevation. Um, but anyway, people from here um, travel multi-day journey to get up to Antioch in order to teach this. Unless you are so circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. So there were false teachers that showed up at the church in Antioch. There were false teachers that were showing up, and they were saying circumcision is required for salvation. Now, I'm not going to explain a whole lot about that because we have already talked about that in this series. But just in case you weren't here, I'll just give you a very quick uh, rundown. We've said in the past that there, at this time, there were people who believed that basically in order to become a Christian, you had to be Jewish first. So if you were already Jewish, that was great. You know, you were one of God's chosen people and, you know, you, you're in and you're eligible. But if you were a Gentile, you had to convert and basically become a Jew first before you could become a Christian. You can't just go straight to just believing in Jesus and he'll forgive you of your sins. You've got to convert first and become one of God's people, the Jews. And one of the main ways you did that was being circumcised. That was the way that you showed you switched teams. That's the way that you showed I am one of them. Circumcision in some ways I think was a little bit like our baptism, right? It was the thing they did to show I'm one of you now. And, um, and along with that would be all the laws of Moses. That you, If you're a Gentile, you, become, you, you join the team, you're now on team Jewish people, and not only have you been circumcised, but you're going to try to obey all of the laws that were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. And then once you've kind of shown your righteousness through your circumcision and through trying to obey all the laws, like then you're good enough to like, accept Jesus as your Savior. And so it seems like something like that is what was being taught here by these people. And so, of course, Paul and Barnabas had been going around saying something completely different than that. They had been just saying, trust in Jesus Christ, he'll forgive you of your sins, you follow him. But Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish people in order to be accepted by God. And so, that's the issue that comes up. Now, I think that there is another book of the Bible that helps us to... to I, this is a guess, but I think it's a very good guess. I think there's another book of the Bible that lets us know that the false teaching that had crept up in Antioch had also found its way into these churches right here that we've been talking about for the past month, Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. I think the false teachers not only went to Antioch, but I think they went all the way over to here in order to try to, whatever you want to call it, deconvert. Um, they wanted to go and try to tell all of these people this message of you've got, you cannot be saved unless you're circumcised. But it's not obvious that the Bible teaches that. And, and one of the reasons why it's not obvious is because so far in this series, we have been talking about these cities and the people in them individually, rather than talking about them as a group. Okay? We've been talking about the people at Lystra, and the people in Iconium, and the people in Derby, the people in Antioch and Pisidia. We have not been talking about them collectively as the Galatians, but that's what they were. In fact, it's right here on the map, right? This was southern Galatia. And so we've talked about these four cities individually. We have not talked about them as, but all of these people that are right here are the Galatians. And that should sound familiar to some of you, right? Because it is a book of the Bible. And there are multiple scholars who believe that the book of Galatians was written to these four churches, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and the other Antioch. So multiple scholars believe that that is the position I'm taking in this sermon. If Paul wrote the letter of Galatians when I think he did, it would have had to have been that he was writing them to these churches that he had just set up at this time. 
And so let's go ahead and go to the book of Galatians because I think that it's going to give us some insight as to what was happening right around this time period when it comes to Christianity and what people were teaching. So we'll go to Galatians and look at it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. This is how it begins. And you've got to remember, this is a letter, really, not a book. It starts off with Paul, an apostle. Why does it start off with that? Because in ancient letters, the first thing you wrote was the author's name. Okay? I know with our letters, well, it's kind of like what we do, I guess, on social media and stuff. But when you handwrite a letter, you usually just say, dear so-and-so. But back then, they would put the author's name first. Paul, an apostle, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me. And then it says, to the churches of Galatia. So you'd name the author first, you'd name the recipient second. He wrote it to the churches of Galatia. I want you to notice, and this is different than most of his other letters, he wrote this one to the churches, plural. There's not just one place called Galatia. It's a region with multiple churches. He wrote to the churches of Galatia, multiple places in that region that apparently were all struggling with the same stuff. The false teaching must have made it into multiple churches, so he wrote one letter to all of the churches to address what it is. Well, what did he say? When he was concerned about this false teaching, this is what he says. This is chapter 6. Basically, I'm just skipping the introductory paragraph and going right to the, where the letter really begins. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you who want to change the gospel about the Messiah. Maybe some of you have read this verse before, but isn't it almost a little bit more powerful to actually picture Paul writing it to these people that he had just been with? And he gets back home. I don't know where he wrote the book of Galatians. I imagine him writing it in Antioch, but the, like the Antioch that's his hometown, but I don't know for sure. At some point, somewhere, he got this message that they were, they were falling for this false, false teaching. And so he, apparently, for whatever reason, he wasn't able to go. And so he wrote this letter on his behalf, right, and sent it to them. And that's what he says. He goes, I'm, I'm shocked. I was just with you. And I was teaching you all this. I'm amazed that you are so quickly, that's why I say just with you. I'm thinking this. Now, he's not saying that years and years have passed. I was just with you. I had just explained the gospel to you. You were all like, yes. And I said, there's going to be troubles. And you said, yeah, we're going to do it anyway. And we appointed elders and we did all that. And you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel, a different good news, a different message. And you can tell by the way he's saying it, it's not like that's okay. It's not like, oh, well, you had one gospel, now you got another one, that's fine. Gospel one, gospel two, any gospel that works for you is fine. No, he says, um, you are turning to another gospel. Not that there is another gospel. Like, gospel two isn't even the real one, right? That's not that there is another gospel. But there are some who are troubling you. And that's what makes me think there were false teachers that went all the way over to Derby and Iconium and Lystra because he's he seems to be talking about some people that are like outsiders to them, right? There are some people who are troubling you. There are some troublemakers who have shown up who are getting you to believe other things. They are troubling you and they want to change the gospel about the Messiah. I gave you the gospel. It's trust in Jesus. Submit to him. He's your Lord. Believe in him. And they've shown up and said, yeah, we're going to have to fix that because that's not totally right. Because you're going you're to have to have a minor surgery if you want God to love you. And there's a lot of rules that Paul left out. And so there's, a, there's actually a whole other way to God than what you've heard. And he's saying, how in the world are you falling for this? These troublemakers are coming and they're getting you to change the gospel. Now, you might say, how do you know that, Mario? That verse does not say anything about circumcision. 
Like there's, there was some different gospel that came up, but how do you know it was that one? How do you know it was the one that matches with Acts chapter 15, the you must be circumcised to be saved? It doesn't say what the other thing is that they were being tricked to believe. Well, yeah, it doesn't say it right there, but I kept reading all the way to the end of Galatians, and, and you can do it too. Because if you get all the way to the end, you can find out. See, in the first paragraph, he doesn't bring it up. Because remember, this is a personal letter, right? So when you write personal letters, you don't explain every little thing because you assume the recipient knows some stuff before they got the letter, right? They know you, you know them. So he just jumps straight into you're believing something different. And they knew what he was talking about. But he, he, gets, he says some things that give it away in chapter 5. So we're going to skip to Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to read you verse number 2. Galatians 5.2 says this. This is Paul writing to them. He says, take note. I, Paul, tell you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Why would you say that in a letter? (laughs) Unless there was teaching going around in the area of Galatia that was like what the false teachers in Antioch were saying. You must be circumcised to be saved. It must have been something like that that they were falling for. And so Paul seems to be saying in this verse, and I think this is the point of the letter, he seems to be saying to them, listen, you can either believe that you are saved by circumcision, or you can believe that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but it can't be both. You can trust in yourself and your righteousness and your way of like, I'm, I'm doing everything legally required of me and I'm following all the rules that are in the Old Testament and I'm doing this stuff. You can either trust in, in your ability to do all that or you can trust that Jesus was righteous on your behalf and forgives you. But it cannot be both. And the other thing that you can see in this letter, and, and I, I don't know, it's just striking to me. I feel like sometimes we grow up in church and the Bible just seems really sort of sterile and impersonal and just like someone wrote, you know, like, I don't know, just the instructions that are on a recipe or a pill bottle or something like that. But when you really look at it, you notice, no, these were actually real people writing real words to real people. And there's a lot of emotion in the book of Galatians. If you just like kind of pay attention, you'll notice Paul was upset when he wrote it. When the false teaching came in, it bothered him. And you can tell, look at chapter, I want to show you two places. Look at chapter four, verses 19 through 20. As he's writing to them, he says, My children, I am again suffering labor pains for you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. That doesn't even sound like a Bible verse, does it? It is. So he's saying, My children, because I think he's saying, like, I'm like sort of like a spiritual father to you. The reason that you all are baby Christians right now is because I preach the gospel to you and you all believe. And he's saying, I'm suffering labor pains for you. That's a metaphor. He's a man. He's never going to suffer labor pains. But he's saying, um, when I was there and I went through difficulties and I went through sufferings and I went through all the effort it took for you to know about Jesus and assuming this is talking about those four churches in southern Galatia, like maybe he's even thinking about the time he had to walk 60 miles and the time he had to walk 18 miles and the time that they almost stoned him to death and the time that they kicked him out. And he's saying, like, I went through some serious rough stuff so that you would be born, so that you would be reborn, so that you would be baby Christians right now, right? So that you would be followers of Jesus. And I feel like I am again suffering labor pains. I feel like I'm starting the whole process over with you until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be with you right now. Obviously, something prevented him from physically going back at this point, so he wrote a letter instead. He's saying, I wish I were with you. I wish we were all hanging out like we used to be so that I could change my tone of voice. I hate that I'm having to write this letter the way I'm writing it. 
but there's a tone that you're going to pick up in this letter because I don't know what to do about you. And then earlier in that same chapter, verse 11, I want you to look at this one. This maybe is one of the most shocking things. In verse 4, verse 11, he says this. After he talks about the stuff that they're doing wrong, and I can't believe you're going back to this stuff. In verse 11, he says, I am fearful for you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. Again, doesn't even sound like a Bible verse. That just sounds like a, a sentence someone wrote in a letter. Because it is a sentence someone wrote in a letter. And it's a Bible verse. And he's writing to them saying, I'm starting to think this whole thing was a waste of my time. Can you picture, can you imagine being Paul? And you've gone through these sufferings. You've gone to these cities. You walked and walked and walked for miles to find total strangers to tell them about Jesus. And they came to know Jesus. And it was difficult because people were kicking you out of town and people were verbally mocking you and people were trying to kill you at different times and there were times where you were running for your life and you went through some serious stuff. But you thought to yourself, it was worth it because they came to know Jesus. These people are saved. There are people who are worshiping the true God and they've been forgiven of their sins. And so you got back home to Antioch and you shared all your missionary stories and you're saying like, it was rough. It's some of the most difficult, probably the most difficult things I've ever gone through in my whole life but I don't regret it. It was worth it because these people are now saved and they trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And then at some point he gets a letter that says that they're falling for this whole, you've got to trust in your own circumcision, your own righteousness to be saved. And at some point he thinks to himself, oh no, what if everything I just went through was a big fat waste of my time? Like, can you hear his heart breaking in this letter? So that's our Bible story for today, okay? Paul, with Barnabas, appoints elders in the churches. He heads back home. After a while, he hears that false teaching has crept into these congregations, possibly undoing the work that he's done there. And so let me go ahead and end our sermon now with two applications, okay? What can we get from that portion of the story of the life of Paul? Application number one is this. I wrote down... Realize that there are times when Christians get emotional and fight for correct doctrine, and they shouldn't always be condemned for that. Sort of long. Let me reread that one more time. Realize that there are times when Christians get emotional and they fight for correct doctrine, and they shouldn't always be condemned for that. And I use the word always there. I'm saying they shouldn't always be condemned because I'm acknowledging that there are times when they should be condemned for that. Like there are times... There are fights that are not worth having. There are times when Christians fight about things and they should be rebuked and go, ah, stop fighting about that. But all I'm saying in this quote for now is I'm saying there are times when people get upset and they go, no, that's wrong and that's false teaching. We've got to start believing the truth. And I'm just saying our knee-jerk reaction shouldn't be that that's always wrong when a Christian does that. You know? Well, what are they making such a big deal of that for? That happens a lot among us. I feel like there is, and I, I, don't, I don't know if it happens a whole lot among us here or not, but I mean, I would say across the nation, there's a lot of squishy Christianity. I'm sure it's in Ocala. I just made that up. Um, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe somebody said, we Google squishy Christianity, see who came up with it. But I mean, like th this, this version of Christianity where people go like, eh, doctrine doesn't matter and getting real specific about what the Bible says isn't really good anyway because it divides people. And can't we all just agree to disagree on everything 
even in really important salvation issues. And meanwhile, in some of those same places, there are people like the Apostle Paul who are standing up and they're going, oh no, the work of the past might get undone if nobody says anything. The work that has been done for Jesus Christ and his kingdom in the past could get undone if this drift happens and no one says anything about it. Now, I know, there are, I'm sure there are plenty of people here who you would say, yes, Mario, but. Like, there are lots of Christians that I know that they just, they argue over stuff. They argue over every little thing. I, I, like, don't, I have secret Bible studies where I don't even invite them anymore because they're just, they're picky, 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 and they make a, a huge deal out of tiny little issues. Okay, and what I will say to you is, oh, I'm aware. I'm very aware. I've been doing this church thing for a long time, and I agree with you. And I do not attend every argument that I'm invited to either, okay? And that's, isn't that a cool phrase? I did not make it up, but I give it to you. I think it was on Pinterest or something. Um, you do not have to attend uh, every argument that you're invited to. And so I, I think that that's true. In fact, I think spiritual maturity is figuring out what is worth arguing about. Some of you are like, why are you on Pinterest? I don't go on there. I just saw maybe, I maybe Heidi, I don't know. Just catch up and get back to the sermon. I think spiritual maturity is figuring out what's worth fighting about and what's not worth fighting about. And I realize some of you might say, well, what is, where's the line? Where's the line of, this is a big deal, the alternative to this is false teaching, we need to discuss this, it's a huge deal, and what is the, on the other side of the line that's like, no, we can agree to disagree on that. And what I'm saying for the purposes of this sermon is, I don't know. I don't know where the line is on every topic. For this sermon, all I'm saying today is, it, it can't be that there's nothing that's worth fighting for. Because Galatians was written. And so it's obvious that there are truths that we must strive for and proclaim and defend. Okay, the second application point, and this, with this I close. My second application topic is dealing with discouragement. You can see that Paul is discouraged here at this point in his life. You can tell he's discouraged by the way he wrote the letter. If you look at chapter 4, verse 20, one more time, you will see chapter 4, verse 20 of Galatians. He says, I would like to be with you right now and change my tone of voice, which is funny because he's writing, but my tone of voice because I don't know what to do about you. He's discouraged. And, and we can relate to that, can't we? I mean, that sounds very contemporary. Like, probably almost everyone in this room has at some point been so discouraged that you looked at somebody and you said, I don't even know what to do about you. And so we can relate to this. And then chapter um, 4, verse 11, if you go back to verse 11 and show that one also. I am fearful you that perhaps my labor for you has been wasted. I'm just so upset thinking about the fact that I might have wasted all my time. And so I guess what I want you to get this morning is when Paul wrote the book of Galatians, he did not write it like a robot. He did not sit down and go, you are falling for false teaching. You need to repent of it. And here is the true teaching. And you need to replace this true teaching. You need to replace the false teaching with the true teaching. Amen. Let it be so. Like that's not, that's not how Galatians sounds at all. Paul probably wrote this letter with a feather or whatever instrument it was like jammed up against that scroll, right? And writing probably big letters because he was upset. And, and what he didn't know 
at the time he was writing it was that this document would change the course of history, influencing what people would believe about God all over the world. This document would influence what people believe about who God is and how you can be saved. It would in, this document would influence people 2,000 years later on the other side of the globe as to what they believe about God and how they would be saved. Paul didn't know that at the time he was writing it. He couldn't have known that at the time he was writing it. He was just upset about the situation he was in. And so I mentioned this to you. Maybe in the midst of your discouragements, God may be using your heartbreaks for things that are good. Even if you don't find out about all of it during your lifetime. So let me end with these words. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. It says, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, in some ways, this is really encouraging. It's encouraging to see that the problems among us are not happening for the first time in history now. It's encouraging to know that not every emotion we feel is out of, you know, inappropriate. It's good for us to know what are the things that are worth arguing about and what are not, and I pray you would give us discernment. Help us to not be passive people who don't fight for what has been set, and help us also not to be overly aggressive people who are arguing about everything and pushing people away. I pray that you would use this, um, like the knowledge of the people who've come before us in the kingdom as an encouragement to us, that we can look at their lives and go, wow, God was faithful. You know, we can, we can, as we pray to you, we can say, you have shown that you know what you're doing, and it's easy for us to look at other people's lives in retrospect and see that you know what you're doing. And then we get in our own lives, and it's very difficult to trust that you know what you're doing. We know Paul's future. We don't know our own. But I pray that you would encourage us to trust you in the midst of our heartbreaks. And I pray anybody in this room who is like dealing with a heartbreak where they're going, I, I don't even know what to do. God, I ask that you would comfort them and give them your peace and give them enough discernment to take one more step. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.